Well, this morning we're going to finish up what I hope has been a profitable study through 1 John. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have um, some testimonies from folks here in our church body who are going to speak about how the truths of this study have uh, impacted their life. So you want to mark your calendar for that. Two weeks from today, um, we're going to have some folks um, speak to that. But as we finish up this morning, I want you to see how John brings closure to this letter, driving home some of the key truths that he's worked so hard for us to, to understand um, and, and affirm. You'll remember that he began his letter by stating what he personally believed based on his eyewitness account of what he and the other apostles saw with their own eyes, what they heard with their own ears, what they actually touched with their own hands concerning what was true. John walked with Jesus. And that he believes that he is the one who is the truth. Jason and I were talking about it this week, and he says the what is a who. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book a little bit, doesn't it? The what is a who. But his point is, once you know who is true, then you know what is true. And that's a great way to look at this. John was certain that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, that He is truth, and that he, those who follow Him in faith have life in His name. John also knows that the people that he's writing to have committed themselves to this truth. But that commitment, as we have learned as we've gone through that, has been called into question by these false teachers who have then infiltrated the church and they're teaching a new truth. They're speaking about Jesus in a new way that contradicts what John had told them. And as a result, they've created all kinds of confusion within this church body that has caused them to be disoriented. And as a result, John writes to them to help give them some direction. Now, we took another backpacking trip. Russell was a part of that trip. John and Luke, you guys were a part of it. With the modern day nights this year, and you'll remember this experience that we had together. But we went uh, one morning up to one of the mountain lakes, hiked up from our campsite. It's a beautiful area. And uh, we were fishing, catching a few fish here and there. And it was a beautiful day. We had lunch up there by this lake. And then... As I began to kind of watch and keep an eye on things, I noticed some clouds starting to come over the mountain peaks. Now, in West Texas, that's no big deal if you see clouds coming because they're 500 miles away, right? But in the mountains, when you see clouds come on top of you, you better act quick because it's going to be on top of you soon. Well, knowing that, I told everybody, okay, guys, it's time to get our packs on. Let's get stuff loaded up and work our way down the mountain. So everybody did what they needed to do. They were getting their packs on. But I mean, in a matter of seconds, the temperature dropped 20 degrees. And when that happened, I thought, uh-oh, we're in trouble. And sure enough, before we knew it, we were smack dab in the middle of a thunderstorm. It was lightning, it was thundering, and the gap between the two was very small. And then all of a sudden, the hail started coming down, and it came in sheets. And I thought, oh, this is not good. We got to the trees thinking maybe we'll get a little cover. No cover there. I don't know how the hail makes it through, but we were getting pelted. And the hail was coming down so thick that it covered up the trail, so you really couldn't see the path anymore. We followed it as quickly as we could because we knew that we were not in a safe place. We needed to get down to the campsite. But as we were working our way down, we followed what we thought was the trail but later learned the ice, as it melted, made a river that went down the path of the trail and then kept going past one of the switchbacks. 
we never saw it. So we get in the middle of the forest, and all of a sudden we realize we're lost. We're not on the trail anymore. And the tendency at this point in time is to panic because you're in a dangerous situation. Now you're disoriented and lost. But we had the, the, the mind to, to say, okay, wait a second. Let's just stop. Let's backtrack the way we came, even if we have to go all the way back up till we find where the trail is, and let's get back on the path. And that's what we did, and we walked not too much further and saw the switchback that we missed. We still hurried down the tra- trail, but a little more carefully this time as we were looking for signs along the way that we were, in fact, on the trail. Well, like that storm caused us to be disoriented and lose our way by following a false trail. The false teachers had also created confusion within this church who had now become disoriented because they were being led down the wrong path. John steps in in his letter and says, wait a minute, don't go any further. You need to backtrack because you've gotten off pace and we need to find out where we missed it and get back on the right path. And he writes this letter to to show them the way, to give them evidences of what that looks like. He wants them to know that that Jesus is their guide. He knows the way to eternal life. So if you want to get there, you've got to follow him. And remember, John is speaking from his own experience. He's been down this road before. He believes that Jesus is not only the way, he made the way. He's not only the truth, or knows the truth, he is the truth. Jesus is the beginning. He was with God. He is God. And everything that was created was created through Him and by Him and for Him. He took on flesh to reveal God to us in a way that we can understand. He drew near so that we could draw near to Him. Everything Jesus did pointed to the destination of the cross and the promise of resurrected life. And when we follow Him, we need to understand that that's where we go too. We go to the cross. We understand that it's at that place we have forgiveness of sins and, and in a sense are then resurrected to walk in a newness of life, no longer encumbered by the slavery of sin that once entangled us. See, our faith in Christ is our victory over sin. And our commitment to follow Him is what leads to eternal life because He is the way. He's the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. John has made that clear to us in his letter, and he's going to really zero in on those truths as he finishes up his letter this morning. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, as we come to you this morning, we recognize that there are a lot of false paths in our world, promises of prosperity, of pleasure, of happiness, But they're dead ends because they don't involve you. They cause us to walk away from you. And we understand that very often the path that we take in following you is not always easy. It often causes uh, some difficult times uh, as we um, have to die to ourselves in order to continue to follow you. So we just pray that this morning that that becomes crystal clear in our minds of what it looks like when we are following you. We pray this in your name. Amen. As I said, John began his letter by first proclaiming what he knew to be true, and then he turns to the 
recipients of his letter, and he confirms for them what he knows to be true about them. Look at that in chapter 2, verse 12. And by the way, we're going to jump around quite a few places this morning in 1 John as we wrap this up. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. John says here, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Basically what John is saying is, I know you know. He's affirming the faith of his reader. I am writing to you because I know that you know him. And and now as he closes his letter, John's whole point in writing was to help them understand that this is how you know that you know. This is how you understand and believe and have confidence that you are on the right path. Turn to chapter 5, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18. This is how John finishes up. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Three times in these four verses, he repeats that two-word phrase, right? We know, we know, we know. And each time he points to one of the the principles of truth that he's tried to speak to in his letter. These are like trail markers along the path of life that lets you know that you are on the right path, that you're heading in the right direction. You're walking in truth. Look at verse 18 again. It says, We know that no one who is born of God sins. Now, it's possible that John is looking back to what we talked about last week in that sin that leads to death, spiritual death, and maybe telling them and reaffirming that that point that, that no child of God can commit the sin that leads to spiritual death. He explains why on the second part when he says, because he who is born of God keeps him. In other words, when you're a child of God, your eternal security rests not in your performance, but in God's promise. It's in the hands of Jesus. And he himself, Jesus, made that point. Turn over to John chapter 10, if you would. John chapter 10, verse 27. John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus is speaking, and listen to what he says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch, snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. See, when you are a child of God, your eternal security rests in the hands of God. And this may be what John has in mind. 
But I also think another possibility is the reaffirmation of some things that he has spoken about several times in his letter so far. Let's look at a few of those examples. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 in verse 3. He's writing, he says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Now turn over to chapter 3, verse 6. It says something very similar. Chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now one more, First John chapter 5, verse 2. It says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. John is telling us this. You know that you are walking in the truth when your life is characterized by obedience. That's a sign that you're on the right path. Now, does that mean that if you sin, then you're no longer a Christian? <laughs> no, that's not what that means. But what it is saying, is if there is a, a pattern of unrepentant sin in your life, you lose the confidence that you are a child of God. You forfeit your assurance. It's like being on a trail without any signs. Who knows if you're headed in the right direction? There's no way to tell. There's no markers that give any indication as to where you're at or where you're going. So are you a child of God? I don't know. And the fact of the matter is, neither do you. And that's the point. He's writing to help them have assurance. And one of the ways that we know that we are walking in the truth is when we see the evidence of faithful obedience in our life. John explains in the second half of verse 18 when he says, But he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. See, apart from Christ, we know from what Paul tells the Ephesians that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That we are under the power of Satan, indulging in the desires of the flesh and by nature, children of wrath. The point is, before Christ, you sinned because you had no choice. But in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things have gone, new things have come. You no longer are a slave to sin, and now you do have a choice. Not only that, the Bible says that you are indwelled by the Spirit of God, that Spirit of truth who guides you in all knowledge of the truth and empowers you to make the right choice. As a child of God, you are led by the Spirit into a life of obedience. And as long as you're following Him, You'll be on that path. Now, does that mean your life is perfect? <laughs> no. But it does mean that your life is being perfected. That as a child of God, your conscience condemns you when you sin. 
like when you start to veer off the trail and you start to look around and go, wait a second, something's not right. This doesn't look familiar. And you know you're not in the right place. Apart from Christ, the Bible says that our consciences was seared. It says it's like a branding iron, which essentially means there is no pain. You've cauterized the nerve endings. Okay? So you sin and it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. But by the grace of God, when you're a child of God, and there's sin in your life, it hurts. It doesn't feel right. You know something's wrong. That's a gift of God's grace. And even though you make mistakes, your heart's desire is to do what's right in the eyes of God. When that's true in your life, you know you're on the right path. That's the evidence of God's Spirit at work in a child of God. Let's look at another marker that he gives us in verse 19. He says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. His point here is that the the world is Satan's domain. He rules this world and uses it to influence behavior and, and directions of people's choices. The reason That's the reason John instructs us back in chapter 2, verse 15. Look at that. Look at what he writes to us as believers as it relates to the influence of the world. Chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. So one of the things that we need to realize as a child of God is that Satan can no longer control you. You need to understand that. Satan does not have that power, but here's what he can do. He can deceive you. He cannot control you, but he can deceive you. He can't make choices for you, but he can try to manipulate things to influence you to make the wrong choice. Instead of giving you a steep hill to climb, he'll, he'll give you easy street. He'll make life comfortable. He'll feed your appetite for sin. He'll tell you, look, everyone's doing it. It can't be all that bad if this is what's so popular. Just, just go with the crowd. C.S. Lewis says that Satan is like a good chess player who always is trying to maneuver you into a position where you can save your castle only by losing your bishop. Now, how many of you have ever played chess before? Okay, so you know that it's a game of strategy, right? And one of those strategies is what you're willing to sacrifice for what you're willing to keep, right? That's part of the game. In chess, the castle represents a stronghold. It's a place of power and protection the bishop represents faith and so what lewis is suggesting is that satan will often maneuver us into a place where we will sacrifice our faith in order to protect our power or our possessions or our comforts in life and it's a very effective strategy and here's why look at chapter 5 verse 4 in first john You'll remember when we read this not too many weeks ago, it says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And here's the key. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. Our faith is our victory over the world. 
Compromising our faith is what gives the enemy the upper hand. It's what he will use to deceive us to make wrong choices when he can distract us from what is true and right and good. I've seen countless examples of people who have decided that church is not all important, so they just go do their own thing. They decided Scripture is not that big of a deal, so they put it on the shelf. And the next thing you know, they're following the crowd into a life of sin that now enslaves them. And it is the most hurtful thing you can ever watch when you see that happening around you, especially to the people you love. And so John reminds us in verse 19 of our passage, we know that we are of God and the world lies in the power of the evil one. We may be in the world, but we are not of the world. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We have great assurance when we rest in the security of God's sovereign ability to use all things for the good of conforming us into the image of His Son. Because Jesus doesn't just know the way, He is the way. And we know when we are walking in the truth, when our life looks increasingly like His. And and there's one attribute of that life that John has repeated over and over in this letter. Can you guess what it is? Love. Right? Love one another as I have loved you. It is the overwhelming attribute in the life of someone who has put their faith in Christ. Let me just uh, give you some examples of that. Turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. It says that we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. When you are a child of God, you begin to, to increasingly have a resemblance of what it is that your father possesses you begin to love like he loves. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. John, again, speaking of this recurring theme, says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. When you are following Christ you will see the evidence of a Christ-like love in your life. And you know that that love is not the same as what you see in the world. God's love seeks the highest good of another. That's the characteristic of His love. The world's love uses another for its own personal gain. God's love involves sacrifice. He tells us and demonstrated to us by evidence that He will give 
everything to us. The world's love involves self-protection. It says, I'll love you only under certain conditions. John is saying that you know that you are walking in the truth when you see signs that give evidence of a Christ-like love in your life. That's how you know you're on the right path. Faithful obedience, Christ-like love. And then look at what he says next in chapter 5, verse 20. It's the third time. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. We know that our faith in Christ introduces us to fellowship with God and we are on the right path when we abide in Him. John says, God has given us understanding that we might know Him. Now, you just need to stop and pause for a minute and consider how profound that is. God the creator of all things, the creator of the universe and every detail that you can fathom, desires for you to know Him in a meaningful and personal way. He's not some abstract idea that we would ascribe to. He's not some philosophy that helps make our life better. He's not some far-off deity that just has to keep His distance because He can't get too close to people like us. This God wants to be known. And he has demonstrated that by sending his son. That's why he came. If you look at John's gospel, he says that no man has ever seen God at any time, but Jesus Christ came so that you may know him. Jesus reveals the truth of God, and that truth is a person. A person who is drawn near to us so that we might draw near to him, that we might know him, that we might abide in him. And what does that mean when you, when you think about abiding in Christ? The word abide literally means to remain. It gives this idea of, of having a trusting dependence. It's what Jesus had in mind when he tells his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide or remain in me and you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And so abiding in Christ means that, that we look at Jesus as the very source and sustenance of our life. Or more simply, we trust our life to Him because we believe He's trustworthy. If we're not convinced that it's not right in God's eyes, we're, we're not going to do it. We're more committed to doing His will than having our way. That's the heart that is committed to follow Christ. Remember, John says the one who abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. We should follow his lead. And what did Jesus say? He said, not my will, Father, but thy will be done. And, and so our heart's desire is the same. Not my will, Father, but your will be done. But there's another aspect of this abiding relationship with God that that John seems to point to not only just us abiding in God, but God actually abiding in us. That's what makes this so beautiful. Turn, if you will, to 1 John chapter 1, verse 27. 
1 John chapter 1, verse 27. Nope, that's not right. 3.24, sorry. 3.24. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now look at chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. You see, when John talks about how God has given us understanding, he's speaking about a work of the Spirit that abides in us. We know that Scripture says that no one calls Jesus Lord except how? By the Spirit. No one walks in obedience except how? By the Spirit. No one is marked by a Christ-like love except how? By the Spirit. The Bible says that the Spirit guides us in all truth. It brings conviction of sin, teaches us and transforms us to be more like Christ. These are all fruits of the Spirit. They're not fruits of Jason or or fruits of, of Hud or fruits of Todd because we don't possess those things in and of ourselves. These are fruits of the Spirit. It's the evidence of His Spirit abiding in us and being evidenced in our life. We abide in God because we trust Him and His Spirit abides in us so that we can relate to Him, that we can know Him, that we can walk in fellowship with Him. John closes his letter with the same heart with which he began it. He wants us to know that we know that we know. He wants us to be certain that we are walking in fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then almost abruptly is that verse 21. It's like an afterthought almost, isn't it? Just like he tacks it on. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. But it's not an add-on. And here's why. Idols are false images. And the false teachers have presented a false image of Jesus Christ. They've created confusion of what it means to be in fellowship with God. So John is telling them, guard yourselves against anything that does not present Christ, as he says here at the end, as the true God and eternal life. Reject what is false. Embrace what is true. Jesus is the true God. And to believe anything less or to put anything in place of the worship that He is due is called idolatry. Whether that's a goal, a desire, a relationship, an occupation, a hobby, a possession, anything that captures your full devotion and distracts you from being fully devoted to Christ is an idol. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. And the best way to do that is to make sure you are walking in the truth. I want to encourage you to do something this week in light of what we've walked through in 1 John and kind of talked about this morning, and that's just to do a little self-examination of your heart and see if there is evidence in your life that you are on the right path. Okay? John gives us some, some clear signs that show us that we're walking in the way that we need to walk. Here are some things that you might consider 
asking yourself. Is my heart's desire to do what is right in the eyes of God and do I see a pattern of faithful obedience? When you do sin, is there a conviction that your heart says something's not right? Something's not right. This needs to look different. And then are you quick to confess your sin knowing that God is faithful and just because of what was accomplished on the cross to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If you see these signs in your life, it is an indicator that you're on the right path. So look at your life and ask yourself, is that what I see? Do you believe that God has the ability to work all things for the good in such a way that they can all be used, good, bad, planned, unexpected, to conform you into the image of His Son? Do you see the handiwork of His Spirit in your life through the evidence of a Christ-like love? Do you consider the needs of others as more important than your own? If you do, those are good signs that you are on the right path. And then finally, do you abide in Christ? Do you depend on Him? And have you entrusted your life to Him? And here's how you know. Do you go to His Word and listen for His Spirit to guide your life? Because those are the attributes of somebody who is walking in fellowship with God. You see a pattern of obedience. You see a sensitivity to sin and a desire to confess sin knowing that your sins are forgiven at the cross. There's a commitment to to abide in Christ, to love one another. Those are all the things that we should see in our life when we are following the way of truth, when we're living in fellowship with God through faith in Christ. So I'd encourage you just to take a look at your life and see if there's evidence of those signs. And just ask yourself, am I on the right path? It's a good question. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that you don't leave us to ourselves because if this were up to us to find our way, we would all be lost and in total desperation without any hope in this world. But you not just showed us the way, you made the way. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And when we walk through faith and and trust in you, you give us a, a spirit that is within us that guides and directs us so that we can be sure that we are walking in a path that leads to eternal life. And we can have confidence of that and, and have joy in that. Just like John says, there is no greater joy than to see people walking in the truth. So I pray, Father, that as we just take some time to examine our heart a little bit this week, that we would ask ourselves honestly, are we on the right path? And maybe we veered off just a little bit and, and we need to, to be honest with ourselves about where we're headed and make a decision to backtrack, to find out where we missed the trail and to get back on. And Father, maybe we need to go help somebody. Sometimes we see people that are off the trail, they're hidden in the wrong direction. Please help keep us from just continuing down the path without going and getting them. And saying, look, I think you're headed in the wrong direction. Let's go back and 
follow the path that leads to eternal life through faith and trust in Christ. May that be true of the lives of those who are here in this church body. And may we encourage others to do the same. Make our joy complete as we see people walking faithfully in the truth. I pray this in your name.